It is June 1st, which means we are not even halfway through the year 2020. Can you... <laughs> it is... The impeachment trials were this year. Yeah. Hello and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I'm Martha Sullivan, one of your co-hosts, and today I am just so very, very tired. I am joined, as always, with my other co-host. I am Pete Romberg, and uh, to quote the whole study, Lord, I'm discouraged. Yeah, we... um are both located in cities that, much like the rest of the country, are grappling with uh, widespread um, protesting. um, Police riots. Police riots. uh, Sudden and irresponsibly orchestrated curfews. um, And listener, I am just so tired. I will I will put this out here. I don't know how many people listening to this this applies to, but if you are in the Chicago area and you are planning on protesting, find me on Twitter. I am offering to be people's phone calls because if in the off chance that you get arrested, I am offering to be people's phone calls. I know attorneys and I am happy to take that burden off of people who choose to protest. Um, Chicago area only, please. <laughs> uh, Find me on Twitter at Magical Martha for more information on that. That being said, writing the phone number that you intend to call on your arm in Sharpie before going to a protest is an excellent idea. Um, Correct. You should all be wearing masks. You could keep a separate mask in your back pocket in a little baggie full of apple cider vinegar, uh, and that will be moderately more effective than a normal mask if you uh, encounter tear gas. Um, And finally, if you have the financial wherewithal, support whatever your local community's version of bail relief funds or, um, you know, uh, Black-owned businesses, uh, any community organizations who are engaged with uh, what's happening out on the streets right now and longer-term reform of uh, policing um, on a smaller scale level. Support your local street medics if there are any organizations out there doing that. Minneapolis has the North Star Health Collective, which... um, They were founded back in 2008 during the RNC protests and did great work for us there. Um, I'm glad to see they're still kicking around. So, uh, yeah, if if you're in a financial situation to donate, please consider doing so to um, especially whatever local organizations you might, uh, you know, have in your own communities. If it was not clear to you uh, on this podcast, we believe that all cops are bad. So, you know, just so you all know where we're coming from. Uh, But on the podcast today, our actual topic is something that we picked back in the, I I don't want to say before times, because that is (laughs) how I've been referring to before the pandemic. Um, But back when we thought that the uh, COVID pandemic was one of the most serious things that we all had to be worrying about on a daily basis. The fun part Um, is, it still is. We just have other things too. Oh yeah, Uh, it's wild. It's like, as we have... um, uh natural disasters caused by torrential rains and flooding it's like oh yeah there's a flooding problem also still covid oh no there's like police riots happening as they like murder uh, black and brown people also still covid still covid 
Um, we are going to be talking about The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history, uh, a book by John M. Barry, which was originally written in, I believe... Uh, you got there one second before I did, and you're talking, because I was opening it up to the page. 2004. I was going to say 2014, but it is, in fact, even more prescient than that. No, uh, um, I, and... I, sorry, I, I remember that uh, George W. Bush read this while he was still president, and that got him starting to think about a pandemic response force, which Obama then actually created, and which Trump then dismantled. Cool. <laughs> I'm throwing my hands up in the air. Um, but anyway, so we're going to we're going to be talking about the Spanish flu of 1918. Um, but before we get into that, uh, Pete, is there anything that you have had stuck in your head that is not just the constant news cycle of, uh, you know, everything else that's happening is there any is it the last 72 to 96 hours yes <laughs> um, which was the time frame i had to give myself when i was thinking about what i wanted to talk about for this segment right i so i was thinking about what i would pick for this and thinking like i anything i've consumed over the weekend is just out of my head um but that's not true i've watched a fair number of movies like more movies over the past week maybe week and a half than I have in a long time. Um, mostly because we're done with our various TV shows, so now it's movies. Um, but the one that I keep coming back to, like, we we, we rewatched Fury Road because that movie's great. The movie uh, is so good. Watched um, the Tom Hanks, Mr. Rogers movie. Highly recommended. Role he was born to play. Uh, but the movie that I'm thinking about the most is a documentary called Honeyland. Um, Macedonian documentary. It was nominated for the... Um, the past Oscars, both for Best Documentary and Best Foreign Language Film from Macedonia. Uh, it did not win either, but um, it's a really... It's unlike any movie I've seen, especially unlike any documentary I've seen. Um, there's no voiceover. It's entirely, like, cinema verite style, so the documentary filmmakers just basically lived with their their subjects for, um, you know, weeks on end. Uh, I think the, the whole project took, like, two two years maybe they had 400 hours of footage by the time they were done um had to cut it down to you know less than two um and it tells the story of a uh a macedonian beekeeper who keeps bees in the like traditional way she's one of the few european beekeepers to do so um lives in a i don't even know if i would call it a small hamlet because it seems like it's literally only her and her uh, very aged and unhealthy mother um and sort of like the, the first part of the movie is just seeing her life and and the beekeeping and you know how she experiences you know going into the the city selling her honey all the rest um but then some uh like a, a nomadic family basically um becomes her neighbors uh they they keep cows have a bunch of kids all the rest of it uh and they start beekeeping as well uh, in the in a much more modern style, uh, with a lot more pressure to extract as much honey as possible and all the rest of it. Um, and then you have the conflict sort of between these two different styles, these two people, um, you know, two families. Um, so it's a combination sort of slice of life. And then it's a deeply, without being at all, um, like hitting you over the head with it, it's deeply environmental and it's deeply sustainable focused. Um, because that's just like it's just the through line of the film 
you know, supports those ethoses. This is fascinating for me. I have a very interesting relationship to honey right now. Um, I think it's, you can read a little bit about it, I believe in Vulture. Um, my dad is an attorney who is suing a whole bunch of honey wholesalers in the United States hmm. for selling what they are calling raw organic honey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've gotten to, uh, learn, I've gotten to learn a whole lot about the process by which honey gets processed to make it shelf stable and what people do to it, uh, in order to be able to sell it for like $9 a bottle Mm -hmm. on the shelf. Mm -hmm. Um, unless you are buying extremely locally, (laughs) which you should, which you should, like I Um, I was going to plug like the best honey, uh, if you have the finances to support it. All the honey you should buy should be within 50 miles of you uh, and even closer if possible. Uh, uh, that's because good for otherwise, the it's not honey. It is really likely that it is corn syrup or it is honey that has come from Vietnam and has been cooked to the point of being corn syrup. Hmm. Um, yeah, my, uh, my dad is suing all of those people marketing, quote unquote, raw organic honey Mm -hmm. because they uh (laughs) they are not yep so you know support your local beekeepers well and again like it's um very local honey possibly has benefits for people with allergies um Mm -hmm. but it's the kind of thing where like it has to be within 20 miles basically for it to have it has to be part of your environment yeah exactly um yeah i i honestly don't know if you would like this movie i think it's worth watching it's unlike, like, it's very unlike a documentary, um, and it's sort of very slow and just slice of lifey, um, but it's, it was about, you know, a section of the world I know nothing about, an occupation I know nothing about, a way of life I know nothing about. I was gonna say, all of those things sound fascinating, why don't you think I would like it? <laughs> um, like, it is, it, it's a little sad, you know, at okay. times. <laughs> So there we go. You're making me sound. <laughs> well, like it can you... also, I I could see it being hard to latch on to, um, just by the way that it's structured. Um, there there's there is like the only dialogue is them talking to each other, you know. So it's like they're almost like characters, but it's all unscripted and and all the rest. Um. Yeah, so, uh, so basically, service, yeah. What service did you watch it on? Um, got the DVD from Marin's library, but then we found mm. out it was available for free on one of them. I <laughs> don't remember which one. <laughs> Could be Hulu. Um, I don't think it's Netflix. Could be HBO Max. It is Hulu. Cool. We can watch it on Hulu. Yeah, no, I, think that's, I think that sounds really interesting. Yeah, especially with your, your current, um, you know... Ian on the honey business, I think you would yeah. you would definitely get an enjoyment out of it. Stuff is wild. Yeah. Uh, so what is stuck in my head is an advanced reader copy that I have been reading uh, while monitoring the call center for work, which I am doing from my home, quote unquote, office. I have never before used air quotes as big as the ones that I just did, <laughs> if you can call my spare room an office. Um, but the book is called Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. It is a, um, it's a little bit Crimson Peak by way of the 1940s 
by way of 1940s Mexico. Interesting. It is about a girl named Nomi who uh, gets summoned. Her her cousin sends her a letter that is um, hysterical and crazy sounding. So she goes out to the like bleak countryside isolated estate where her cousin lives with her um, European husband and his family in their like rundown, dilapidated gothic mansion um, and where she is hearing ghosts in the walls. Hmm. So it's, it has all of the like extremely classic gothic literature tropes, um, but it's set in uh, like just outside of Mexico City in the 1940s, so you get a lot of really great um, set dressing and a lot of also really great kind of tonal whiplash <laughs> from going from this like uh, extremely out of place European style uh, mansion that's like all cold and damp and moldering, and then just down the base of the hill that it's on is this like. Um, warm uh like mexican village um is is this the kind of book that in five years guillermo del toro is either going to be directing or producing an adaptation of god i hope so (laughs) although yeah no i i really i hope so it is very reminiscent of i already compared it to crimson peak but also um the orphanage Mm mm-hmm which I believe we talked about on this podcast a hundred years ago. I believe so. Um, but yeah, it, it has that kind of feeling to it also. Um, and it just has such great descriptions of like fungus and, you know, these highfalutin European paintings that are literally molding because they were not made to stand up to the weather in Mexico. And <laughs> mm, yeah, symbolism. And no, Yes, and Nomi is a great character. She's um, late teens, early 20s. She's in college, um, but she's a, a society girl who uh, kind of chafes at like the, the rigidity of the stru- structures that she operates under. And like she's a beautiful woman, so she's learned how to kind of use her beauty to get what she wants and manipulate the men that are like falling at her feet. Uh, and she's also just very over it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the um, her cousin's husband's family are all these like one pale European people. And she's just like, I can't with you. I can't with you <laughs> white people. Like, um, But yeah, I believe that book is coming out later this month. I believe the end of Ju- the end of June. Uh, and if you are into horror um, and own voices stories, I recommend giving it a shot. Cool. Uh, we are going to take a quick recess. And when we come back, we are going to get into the great influenza. back 
So The Great Influenza by John M. Barry is a chunker of a book, which is why it is the only piece of homework that we assigned uh, for our episode today. Um, and it is a deep dive into not only the events of the pandemic of uh, 1918, um, but also um, the foundations of medical science in the United States and in the world and all of the different factors that led up to um, the Spanish flu being the disaster that it was. Um, I had not read this before. I had actually not heard of this book before until about four or five weeks ago when hmm. literally everyone on the planet requested it from the library at the same time. <laughs> um, but as the, I'm just going to read the blurb on the back really quick so we kind of know what we're dealing with here. Uh, in the winter of 1918, at the height of World War I, history's most, most lethal influenza virus erupted in an army camp in Kansas, moved east with American troops, and then exploded, killing as many as 100 million people worldwide. It killed more people in 24 weeks than AIDS killed in 24 years, more in a year than the Black Death killed in a century. Uh, but this was not the Middle Ages, and 1918 marked the first collision between modern science and epidemic disease. Um, I found this an illuminating read, actually. <laughs> um, starting and certainly not ending with the fact that it was called the Spanish flu because Spain was the only country to accurately report uh, its... Death and infection rates. Uh, because they were a neutral country during World War One, and all the other countries were like, keep a lockdown on this because it will uh, hurt morale. Yes. Um, in, where where did you say you saw that article? Uh, Washington uh, with, Post. Yeah, in a, in a, well, actually, you know what, let's, let's build up to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, um I, I had not read this before either. I had read The Rising Tide, which was another book by John M. Barry about the um, uh, a Great Mississippi Flood in the 1920s. Um, hmm. I'm now realizing a great flu pandemic, uh, natural disasters, um, all that good stuff. 1920s sounding vaguely familiar to today. Um, st uh, stock market crash and Great Depression. Um, so I... Yeah, I also had not read this. I had heard about it a little bit before. It is sort of the book people point... Uh, <laughs> before coronavirus, it was the book people pointed to whenever they were talking about a possible new pandemic um, occurring and looking back at the past for how previous pandemics were or were not, uh, you know, well treated. Um, well, and in the, in the afterword, uh, Barry actually talks about how... Um, he was, he got involved in, oh, did you do, the CDC actually invited him to be part of the, like, planning committee during the 2009, um, the was 2000, that, uh, SARS? No, H1N1. Oh, okay. Um, but because of the research he'd done on this book, he was asked to you know, be part of the think tank for how the U.S. should be responding to that. Mm -hmm. um, how did you feel about the reporting on this? Uh, what do you mean? The um... like, do we do we think that he so? Oh, like how 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 much do I agree with his like analysis and historizing and such? 
Yeah. Okay. Um, sorry, I thinking about like other reporters referencing it before Corona and even at the beginning of Corona, I was going in that direction. Um, cutting all that. Oh no, I just mean like. Yeah. Um, I was I was really impressed. I I felt that that uh, John, if I may call him John, I felt <laughs> that he and I actually had very similar feelings about how everything played out. Um, yes. Yeah. I I agree. I thought that Barry did a great job at. He was very clear. So <laughs> I'm not sure if I like his writing style or not. It's very conversational. He likes repeating phrases, even like a short sentence followed by the exact same short sentence to drive the point home, which is combination like annoying and also effective. Um, it's how I write fiction. So, I, <laughs> so you were all in. I had a hard time being mad about it. I was like, yes, I see what you're doing. Right, right. Like he repeated it's it was influenza, only influenza only like influenza. 8 million times, which is like really effective. Um, he also did a good job at hedging like, at, at asserting what he thinks to be true while also clarifying that it's not 100% confirmed. So um, his assertion, which is now generally treated as, like, as the truth, is that this started in Kansas, um, first in a small town in Kansas, then it made its way to an army camp, and from there sort of spread everywhere. Um, that's obviously something that's impossible to confirm with any sort of, like, 100% accuracy. Um, and there are competing claims. He does bring those up, but then like doubles down on his own analysis and interpretation um, in a way that I thought was compelling. But also, it's his argument, so I better find it compelling. Right. Like I, I think that if if you're writing if you're writing this kind of book, I think it's fair to say these are the different theories. This is what I believe is true, and then this is the information that I am basing that belief off of, right. which I think he did a good job of representing. Like. Right. Um, but again, persuasive argument. Right. Um, I was also, I was really fascinated by, I mean, the whole book is, is very well written. It's very well constructed. Um, I enjoyed the first half, not first half, like the first section a lot more than I thought it was, I would. That was the building American medicine as a profession, like as a respected profession. Um, I knew nothing about the history of science and specifically scientific medicine in the United States during that time period. Um, turns out, uh, like, before 1870, there wasn't any. <laughs> um, I was going to say, this, that actually, that section helped clarify for me um, a lot of how we, and I say we as in the cultural we. I would like mm -hmm. everyone listening to this right now to know that I believe in medical science. I get my vaccinations every year. I am, I believe in doctors i think our healthcare system is broken but in general right that, I, that, that's the system not the practitioner right um but this did help clarify for me the distrust that exists in the american public for medical science like it has it has existed for as long as we have been a country and I was not clear on how deep those roots went mm -hmm. <clears throat> when we're talking about like people who don't trust vaccines, who don't trust doctors. Like it is not surprising to me now to know, to see how difficult it is to get people to believe in or to get people to understand vaccinations and like health science because a distrust of that 
is so deeply ingrained in us as a culture. Yeah, but like on the other hand, it's been a hundred years since since like this last pandemic, which was um, the like by that point, medicine was fighting to become professionalized and institutionalized and scientificized um in the way it is now it, it, it had not gotten there yet but it was on its way like come on people like anyone alive now you know uh, uh, boomers even silent generation like y'all grew up in the 30s at the latest listen to your doctors get your vaccines well except and again i want to be clear i am talking about this in terms of understanding rather than sympathizing oh yeah, yeah because 100%. i agree with you yeah i'm just not surprised we are also a nation whose views on sex are 200 years old like this is I'm it is not even earlier than that but yeah <laughs> not uncommon for our views on things to be dictated by how we have viewed them for centuries true and fair and yeah and, and also so tangential that like we can move on from that point <laughs> i don't know i don't think it is because i think i think that's at the core of a lot of what we're seeing or how we're seeing people deal with um the pandemic now one of the reasons that i wanted to read this book was because i'm looking for literally anything that can help me understand this moment in time that we are dealing with. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about people who I have, I have seen um, studies and surveys that illustrate the fact that this is a vocal minority rather than the majority. Right. But when you're talking about the people who are like, well, I don't want to wear a mask because it infringes on my personal freedom. I think that's connected to this distrust of what medical science tells us is true. It's people thinking that they know better for themselves than what medical science is telling them is a fact. I think that that's absolutely one symptom, but I, uh, huh, see what I did there? Uh, but it's also <laughs> like, it's, like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, but it's also all wrapped up in like our absolutely tribal society and like using mask wearing as virtue signaling or not wearing a mask as vice signaling, basically, um, where like there, there's an underlying, there's a kernel of willingness to, tr to either trust or not trust medical professionals uh, and science in general, based on, a, a, you know, your education level, where you grew up, your predilections for various conspiracy theory thinking and such. Um, and that kernel can either be watered or like tamped down, um, depending on what other like input you're getting. So if you're someone who is already predisposed to not trust science and not trust medicine, um, and then you have the leader of the personality cult that you follow telling you that it's not manly to wear masks and to not wear masks to own the libs, um, then like that will exacerbate that. Whereas if you were already not trusting science, but then the leader of your personality cult was saying like, yeah, I know it's not great, but like, you know, let's put on some masks and stuff for everyone. Um, you're still going to have, a, a, you know, some minority of people refusing to do it anyway, but I think it would be smaller than what is even now a small but vocal minority. I guess I don't see where you and I are disagreeing because everything that you just said feels in line with what I was sure. asserting. Sure, I, um, I think it's more but just also, the... I think you also need to make room for the um, white, upper-middle-class anti-vaxxers in this equation mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who are also related to, you know, these are, these are the um, white boomer women who would 
rather break quarantine than go a single day without getting their hair cut again. Um, right. But I, I, again, think that that's part of... I So I, I'm just bringing in a confluence of other factors rather than just looking at a distrust of science and medicine, um, because I do well, think right, that, like... But I, I think that a distrust of science and medicine is a symptom of everything else that you're saying. Or rather, they're or all it's, symptoms it's, of a bigger issue. Right, right, that, right, exactly, exactly. And it's just a question of how much we weight each symptom, or now the symptom uh, metaphor doesn't work because they're factors, not symptoms. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I don't know about you, but reading this actually made me feel a lot better about what's happening now. Um, if only because the death rate and the manner of death was so horrific then. Well, I think that there are a couple of things that we have to remember about that. And it is important to reiterate because if I have to listen to one more person on my library reference line complain about the fact that we're still closed because it's just the flu mm -hmm. COVID is not the flu mm -hmm. um, and also this was the flu and as barry repeated multiple times it was only the flu right um but i i do think that the difference in um the disease means that there are differences in how we reacted to it um because COVID is awful uh it does not move as fast as this um as this flu did. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I, I think that some of those differences are down to a difference in just the animal that we're dealing with. Yes. Um, but like, and, and that's entirely true, but that also means that like, we haven't had the experience of, um, you know, walking down the street and having every single door of every single house covered with black crepe paper signaling that someone had died there. Like, True. and you're right, it is because it's a different, it's a different beast entirely, but from a lived experience, that is a way worse lived experience than what we are undergoing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not trying to fight with you about this. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to have like a, a misery comparison <laughs> contest. <laughs> Um, but you're right. Like we are not dealing with um, that same level of desolation, I guess. Um, well, and 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 um, morbidity. Mm -hmm. I I did appreciate though. Um, I I found a lot of similarities in how he talked about about it like it was the flu but it was also doing things that no one had seen before mm -hmm. um which is also what scares me so badly about covid is that we keep finding new ways that it is totally working people up like yeah one one thing that i did not take solace from was the fact that there was the first wave in april uh in in 1918 and that was bad but that was like just a flu and then it came back roaring in, like, what, uh, September, October? Um, and, you know, we are we are only at the April phase of that at the moment. Like, and, and who knows? Like, we don't know enough about COVID 
it's not the flu. It might not like mutate in the same way that especially this specific strain of flu did. That's one of the things that made this so deadly was the way like it was a uh, like highly variable version of the flu, very unstable. Um, so, you know, the odds of, of COVID wildly mutating and coming back worse than ever in the fall, I, I have no idea what they are, but I think that they're less than than what it was then. I I tried not to do too much forecasting while yeah. I was reading this book. Like I I really tried to not read it as a like, oh, okay, this is what is going to happen right to us right now because it is a different situation, but also there were so many disheartening similarities um mostly in not in how the disease was reacting, but in what was happening kind of concurrently to the disease like in terms of our reactions as a people as a media as a government Mm -hmm. um i was extremely disheartened to see how similar what is going on right now like how that bears so much similarity to what happened in 1918 which i think was a pretty deep mishandling of the situation yeah um i i'm torn on this one i am i (laughs) i'm not one to praise the federal government's handling of this anytime soon but um i do think that the media environment then and just the the cultural environment then was so different because you had the war going on you had wilson mobilizing the entire apparatus of the federal government to be in people's lives in a way more meaningful than uh, in Barry's argument, um, like ever before or ever since, um, you know, uh, concerns about morale concerns about, you know, all the rest of it. And also you just have people shipped around the country and across the world all the time through the military. Um, so that's a great vector. So like, yes, we have had terrible media handling of this looking at you, Fox news. Um, but we haven't had widespread media censorship. Um, we've had terrible government handling of it, uh, at the federal level, but we've also had states handling it fair, like, depending on the state, but many states have been handling it fairly well, um, to, to different degrees. Uh, and there hasn't, because there hasn't been the, like, you know, some sort of external war that is taking up all of our resources before the disease even hit, um, you know, we, we don't have sort of that variable added as well. True. That, Although that, that statement was a lot stronger um, 96 hours ago. Now, who knows? I, I was just about to say, I, I would have agreed with you about the part about us not being at war. Um, yeah, on Friday. Three days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I do think that it is very telling. I'm going to bring up the interview that I alluded to at the beginning of this episode um, from the Washington Post that I haven't read yet, but I'm going to, but an interview with John Barry, where he and the the interview asked, was sorry the interview was from May 26th of this year, so like just a week ago. Yeah, um, but he does address this in the afterword of this book. Like, what does he wish was the lesson that we had take? Like, the one thing that he wishes we had learned from 1918, and by we I mean our federal government, and he says to be truthful Mm -hmm. and i i don't think that that has happened well and so the um the final question of the interview 
was, did we learn that lesson? And his response was, apparently not. Apparently not, yeah. yeah. Um, I was actually, I was talking about this in re- in regards to COVID with my husband, that I think a lot of the initial coverage of it, comparing it to the flu, has done an incredible amount of damage, mm. um, particularly to our younger populations. I think there is a straight line you can draw between um, all of those idiot college students who still went to Florida for spring break and being told like, oh, it's only dangerous if you're old. Yeah, yeah. And I, now I we're finding that. out that that is not in fact true. Um, and I think that a lot of young people are going to die uh because they were told that they didn't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like the mask question, right? I, I think that was a mishandling on the CDC's part where I understand the CDC's... I understand where the CDC was coming from, and I still think they thoroughly messed up the way they handled it. Um, in the sense that early on they said, you don't need to wear a mask, it won't do a whole lot. And they said that because they wanted to reserve, like, you know actual N95 and surgical masks for people who need it, such as medical professionals. Um, But then that just became masks aren't useful. So then when they pivoted and said, actually, cloth masks are maybe useful in stopping the spread, now all of a sudden it's like, but you just said masks aren't useful. Um, And so, like, I I think that that was a... Yeah, like, I understand their idea behind what they were saying and i think they messaged it badly and then continued to message it badly so now we have idiots who are like you're infringing on my constitutional rights by making me wear a mask in a private business (laughs) well well and that coupled with the already aforementioned distrust of medical science it's like well you already told me that i didn't have to do this so now which is it Mm -hmm. that being said like the cdc is routinely among the most trusted uh, by americans even still um, True. in terms of all of this, um, that, that number is not 90%, uh, but it is the most trusted. Um, so I wrote down some discussion questions, which we have kind of all touched on already, mostly about the fact that I think it's wild that being a doctor wasn't a thing you needed an advanced degree for <laughs> until the late 1800s. Uh, or even a degree for. Yes. <laughs> um, and then also how even if you were a doctor, the the barber slash surgeon probably knew more about the human body than you did because he was doing actual anatomy. <laughs> right. You, you never actually like looked at a dead body until a patient died on you. Yeah. Um, yeah, like that's that, that sort of is... stuff is like that sort of stuff is wild. Um, I don't know. Did you ever watch the show The Nick? I watched the first episode, sure. and I thought it was a lot. I might try it again. Um, I thought it was a lot. <laughs> it's it's it remains a lot. I think I only saw the first season. Um, I'm always in for Clive Owen, but uh, like that was happening around like what 1890s, I think. And it's, like, you think of that as being, like, that's still, like, a slightly, um, quote-unquote, barbaric, like, what's the term, heroic medicine kind of age. Um, 
you know, bite down on this leather strap as we saw your arm off kind of situation. But you think of it as being more advanced and more scientific than what was happening during the Civil War. And it turns out that in most places, nope, it was, not. It was exactly the same as what was <laughs> happening in the Civil War, which means like, maybe you should wash your hands, but that's only if you're one of those newfangled modern doctors. The first episode has a woman dying on a table in a theater mm -hmm. uh, from a C-section. Mm -hmm. So that was fun and good. Be, be, like, um, because that was a time when, like, you learned medicine by watching a doctor do medicine on someone. Yes. <laughs> it's like, uh. Um, random sidebar, I might delete it. There is a famous surgery from around that time period um, that had a 300% mortality rate. Because the patient died, the surgeon died, and one of the surgeon's assistants died. <laughs> I feel like you have told me about this it's before. It's possible. I love that story. Or maybe story. my sister told me about it in the context of trying to get me to watch The Nick. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love that story because it just is like, how? Uh, but like, it's, it's because it was a very painful operation. So like, the surgeon was prized for being very quick. And like, and he was very quick, but that quickness uh, led to a little bit of some some slippage. <laughs> it is also possible that I learned about this from when I made my husband take me to the Mütter Museum in um, Pittsburgh. I think it's either Pittsburgh or Philadelphia, um, but it is a museum of medical oddities. Ooh, fun! It is incredible. <laughs> nice. Um it's yeah it's in philadelphia and it is full of it is like entirely um specimen like donated specimen based mm -hmm. and it's a research museum so it's stuff in where jars. people it's where people send weird stuff to be studied and then like have science done to it yeah. to learn more about the weird stuff that our bodies occasionally do. Um, <laughs> Bill did not care for it as much as I did. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I have the distinct feeling that I would enjoy that museum. And your wife would, would not. Would not go inside that museum. <laughs> I, I did get Bill I, to go hand, like, into she... it, although at a certain point he was like, I'm going to wait for you in the gift shop. <laughs> on the other hand, she watches like pimple popping videos, and that is a hard no for me. So Oh, really? Maybe. I find those very soothing. Oh, oh no. no. <laughs> if I watch it happen on YouTube, I'm not picking at my own face. Mm, that's going to be a hard no for me. <laughs> um, any other thoughts that we have on... The great did you find this to be a helpful book to read right now i did i well i thoroughly enjoyed it i would have enjoyed reading it during any time um but i i did think it was very helpful to read now um one of the most fascinating things that i learned from this was that um woodrow wilson came down with a debilitating case of it while he was at versailles negotiating the peace and there was um, Barry presents very strong arguments that um, what, one of the side effects of this flu, or side effects, one of the possible effects of this flu that happened in a small but noticeable percentage of the population was um, uh, basically like, I'm going to get the medical terms entirely wrong, but damage to the mind, um, whether that is like just forgetfulness or 
um, fatigue or uh, psychosis of some sorts, um, incredibly high suicide rates among some people. uh, patients um, who who survived the flu, but then were just depressed afterwards and eventually killed themselves. Um, and so one of Barry's arguments is that it's very possible that Wilson, like Wilson definitely came down with a bad case of the flu. He was basically unconscious for three to four days um, and then was bedridden for weeks after that. But it's entirely possible that the flu uh, sapped his intellectual abilities um, and that led him to cave into Clemenceau's demands in Versailles, which uh, means that Wilson went from... He, he walked into Versailles with his uh, victory without... Or peace without victory idea, where it's like, yeah, we beat the Germans, but we're not going to beat them up now that we've won. Um, and he caved into all the demands, which led inevitably to World War II. Um, so it's like you could... It would be a stretch, and I would not do it to say that that the 1918 influenza caused World War II, but in the chain of causes, Versailles is a major cause of World War II. Wilson, who knows? You know, we're we're playing with counterfactuals here. It's possible that Wilson would never have convinced Clemenceau to back down on his war demands, um, like you know, um, reparations and and uh, all the rest. Um, but. You know, if he had not been struck down by the flu, it's possible that he would have fought harder. Maybe he would have pulled out. Maybe the U.S. would have made a separate peace with Germany. We're all playing with counterfactuals, so who knows? But it was it was a fascinating part that I had never, uh, like, even known about. Hmm. That's wild. Yeah, right? And And like I said, it's always tough playing with counterfactuals, but definitely like wild to think about um and then and then wilson famously had a stroke a few months later and that also was possibly caused by the flu like the the stroke the the flu weakened him enough and caused enough um you know uh hurt his brain that um uh you know that led him to have a stroke and he spent the rest of his term basically an invalid and his wife and one of his um his chief of staff basically ran the executive branch for like the last two years of his presidency also wild yeah (laughs) well i keep saying about our current situation that maybe all of the old guys who were treating the uh severity of covid so flippantly maybe they'll all die um that doesn't give me a lot of hope though in the event that that does happen that that would actually make anything better (laughs) right right um yeah. One, I guess one other thing I was thinking about with the, the book was the, the 1918 pandemic was so terrible, not only for its death rate and the spread and all the rest of it, but because it struck down like <laughs> young people, like basically Martha, you and I, uh, would be uh-huh. the first ones to die during this disease, um, which is unlike any other flu, uh, which tends to attack the old and the young. Um, people with weakened immune systems. But this flu sort of caused the immune system to go into overdrive and that, kill it. Anytime, anytime Barry got into the, like, science of what the virus was doing, I'm all in on stuff like that. And yeah, yeah reading about how the overactive immune system, the overactive immune response um, basically was drowning people like their lungs were drowning in their own immune response was Mm -hmm. 
horrible and also deeply, deeply fascinating to me. Right. And it, it meant that the people with the best immune system were the most at risk. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, that that again was something that reading it, it's like, wow, I'm glad that uh, that is not what COVID is doing. No, although COVID is doing some pretty, uh, yeah, pretty yeah. wild stuff with your lungs there. Yeah. It, it it's it almost feels like COVID is doing a lot of stuff on the margins where there are a lot of a lot of marginal cases where it's like what what is this about? Um, mm-hmm. But for most people who get it, it's a very clear sort of like this is the the likely path of it, um, and it's not pleasant, but it's not you know it, it it's not. But then you do have the outlier cases too, where it's like nope, that's not what we thought was going to happen. We don't know enough about this yet because it's only been around for a couple months. How does that feel as an endpoint to you? We can end there. I don't. I don't know that I have anything else to say. Um, um, did you? I guess. What was your take on his treatment of like the race to find the disease, the race to find the vaccine, because or to make a vaccine? Because that's that's very different than what we're dealing with now. Like they they sort of did not know what the cause was and were going down a lot of wrong ends to even figure out what it was whereas we know what the disease is we just need to figure out how to combat it obviously our science is also 100 years better than it was for them so like there's a lot of you know we're we're coming at this from a slightly stronger slightly uh from definitely stronger ground than they were but I'm sorry, what was your question? Um, just what you thought about his, like, that whole sort of, like, race to find the disease um, angle. Uh, possibly you did not get there. Um, I got, haha, listeners have just been revealed <laughs> to can, the fact that I, I can delete that if you don't book. want to be outed. <laughs> um, I'm in, I'm in the race chapter right now. Okay. Um, I mean... I thought it was I thought it was kind of necessary to understanding um it it is a necessary step in understanding the of uh, the event um I don't know that I drew I don't know that I drew too many parallels between those events and what were happening what's happening now because I sort of assume that any research into a vaccine right now is getting caught up in um, pharmaceutical company BS. <laughs> I don't know. That's a um, there's point. also just so much other stuff happening that I haven't kept too on top of what's going on with a vaccine. Well, um, I, and honestly, I don't think there's any public information out yet because there isn't any, there isn't any information yet. Right. Um, but, it, it, but no, in terms of just understanding this event in this book, I I thought that that the exploration of that was, you know, part of that whole story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you've you've got a discussion question here that says, "Were you as shocked as I was about the number of epidemics that happened nationwide oh, that we never hear yeah. about?" Oh, yeah. So he he just sort of flippantly talks about like. I think in the the beginning of the book, I don't remember what the actual 
numbers were, but I guess my understanding of what an epidemic versus a pandemic is wasn't true, wasn't really like fully formed. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's like a number of epidemics that just happen every year. Like Mm -hmm. they are just things that happen. And I, I didn't know. I was (laughs) kind of shocked to read about all of these and a lot of the, um, the like various HN numbered viruses um, talking about, cause we, I have heard of H1N1 obviously because that was a big part of um, that was, you know, part of my news environment when I was cognizant enough of the news to be keeping track of that. But there were like six different flu epidemic incidents that have happened throughout history that I just, I just didn't know about. And it was kind of wild to read about how kind of common this can be. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously not to the scale that we're seeing now or that we saw in 1918. um, But still uh, that, that this, that this happens. Right. I, um, I like, putting my his- history hat on like everyone knows about the black death because it the black death um i was actually intrigued by the fact that apparently in australia they thought like it became just common cultural currency that the 1918 pandemic was the black death so like barry was interviewing people um you know who, who were children who lived through it and they're all like oh yeah the plague the black death blah 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 i remember people who were killed by the plague um but, uh, like, that's the big one everyone knows from history. But going back in history, there was, like, the Antonine Plague and the, the Plague of Justinian. Like, there are cyclical, and they're called plague, they're not necessarily Black Death, but there are cyclical um, epidemics that, like, you know, brought the Roman Empire to its knees three or four different times <laughs> during the course of the Roman Empire uh, that no one, unless you know your Roman history, you would have no idea about. Um, and that all I, I knew already. But then going forward, Martha, I was also as, like, shocked as you were that it's like, oh, there's been, like, a bunch of flu pandemics in the past 20 years that I've never heard of? Okay. Right? <laughs> it, like, it almost yeah, feels I, like you could call every flu season an epidemic somewhere. I don't know if this just makes me sound, like, irretrievably naive or what, but, yeah, I thought it was a little wild. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so we are going to leave you all on that contemplative note with the great influenza. Um, uh, get your, get your flu shots uh, for the next, I mean, obviously it's, it's summer now, so those aren't happening, but come fall, get your flu shots for the love of God, <laughs> get your flu shot. My mother got one this year and I, was so proud of her. She and I have fought over this for a long time, not because she doesn't believe in them, but because she has always been a, well, I never get the flu, so why do I need one? Mother, it's not for you. Yeah, it's for I, everyone else. I will admit, my mom is a nurse, and she every year texts me to like get a flu shot, and I am not great at doing it. Uh, Did you at least get them when you were teaching? Yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. Uh... But it's like, you know, I am some years I do and some years I don't. And it's entirely just because, you know, life happens. I forget whatever. No excuse. But that's the excuse. 
but come this fall, <laughs> this is definitely a yes year. Yes. Um, yeah, get your flu shot. Uh, next episode, we are going to be taking a deep dive into one story told three times or three different ways. Uh, we are going to be looking at Watchmen and both of its adaptations. So that would be Watchmen, the graphic novel by Alan Moore, uh, Watchmen, the 2005 no, movie? No, I was in college. 2008? Was it really? Uh, 2009. 2009, dang. <laughs> um, the 2009 movie directed by Zack Snyder, uh, and then the 2019 TV adaptation on HBO. The way you um, described but... this as uh, the same story told three times, at first I was like, ooh, is it Rashomon? <laughs> no, but if you want to do a Rashomon we should, episode... We should do a Rashomon episode. We should talk. <laughs> All right, great. Um, um, yeah, so that's going to be where we're at in the next couple of weeks. Um, until then, uh, you can follow us on social media on all the places at DYDYH Podcast. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, leave us a comment, uh, question, idea for an upcoming episode, whatever you want. Um, you can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. Mm -hmm. uh, you can find me online at Magical Martha and all the places. Um, Pete, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O-3000, where it's politics and pop culture. Um, you know, last couple days have been a lot of tweets and retweets and things, but also some penguins. <laughs> Shed Aquarium. Where's doing, Wellington? Yeah, doing the hero's work. Um, yeah. Uh, Martha, any other podcasts you want to be plugging? Uh, yes, and I did not even need that weighty segue <laughs> from you to remember to do it. Um, on this same feed on Alternating Wednesdays, I release a podcast called Love Ya with uh, Pete's wife, Marin, where we watch a teen rom-com and then talk about it with you. Uh, slightly less weighty than our current discussion material over here. Uh, so check that out if that's of interest to you. What's your next, um, uh, your next one? What a Girl Wants. I think uh, with Amanda Bynes yes, and that, Colin Firth. That sounds right. Mm -hmm. um, normally I would also plug my newsletter here, but I haven't had the brain space to write that for like two months. So, mm -hmm. you know, check it out if you want to or not. It's fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> anything else that you would like to plug, sir? Um, like we said at the top, if you have the financial wherewithal, spread that love around to the folks who need it. Um, you know, focus on your own communities, but also look to, to the places that are hurting the most as well. Um, do, do the research to make sure it's going to, to good places. Um, but you know, that should be easy enough research to do for our listeners. Uh, yeah, if, if you can help out. Mm-hmm. That's all I got. That's all I got. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, have fun doing your homework. We will see you next time. And until then, class dismissed. All right. All right. I'm
go make dinner. Yeah, same. 